We begin with a short story called The Empty House by Algernon Blackwood. Certain houses, like certain persons, manage somehow to proclaim at once their character for evil. In the case of the latter, no particular feature needed betray them. They may boast an open continuance and an ingenuous smile. And yet their company leaves the unalterable conviction that there is something radically amiss with their being, that they are evil. Willy-nilly, they seem to communicate an atmosphere of secret and wicked thoughts, which makes those in their immediate neighborhood shrink from them as from a thing diseased. And perhaps, with houses, the same principle is operative, and it is the aroma of evil deeds committed under a particular roof long after the actual doers have passed away, that makes the goose flesh come and the hair rise. Something of the original passion of the evil doer, and for the horror felt by his victim, enters the heart of the innocent watcher, and becomes suddenly conscious of tingling nerves, creeping skin, and chilling of the blood. He is terror-stricken without apparent cause. There was manifestly nothing in the external appearance of this particular house to bear out the tales of the horror that was said to reign within. It was neither lonely or unkept. It stood crowded in a corner of a square and looked exactly like the houses on either side of it. It had the same number of windows as its neighbors, the same balcony overlooking the gardens, the same white steps leading up to the heavy black front door, and, in the rear, there was the same narrow strip of green, with neat box borders running up the wall that divided it from the backs of the adjoining houses. Apparently, too, the number of chimney pots on the roof was the same, the breadth and the angle of the eaves, and even the height of the dirty area railings. And yet this house in the square, that seemed precisely similar to its fifty ugly neighbors, was a matter-of-fact entirely different, horribly different. Wherein lay this marked, invisible difference is impossible to say. It cannot be ascribed wholly to the imagination, because some persons who had spent some time in the house, knowing nothing of the facts, had declared positively that certain rooms were so disagreeable that they would rather die than enter them again, and that the atmosphere of the whole house produced in the symptoms of genuine terror, while the series of innocent tenants who had tried to live in it had been forced to decamp at the shortest possible notice was indeed little less than a scandal in the town. When Shorthouse arrived to pay a weekend visit to his Aunt Julia in her little house on the seafront at the end of the town, he found her charged to the brim with mystery and excitement. He had only received her telegram that morning, and he had come anticipating boredom. But the moment he touched her hand and kissed her apple-skin wrinkled cheek, he caught the first wave of her electrical condition. The impression deepened when he learned that there were to be no other visitors, and that he had been telegraphed with a very special object. Something was in the wind, and the something would doubtless bear fruit. For his elderly spinster aunt, with a mania for physical research, and brains as well as power, and by hook or by crook she usually managed to accomplish her ends. The revelation was made soon after tea, when she slided close to him and they paced slowly along the seafront in the dusk. I've got the keys, she announced in a delighted, yet half-awesome voice. Got them till Monday. The keys of the bathing machine, or... he asked innocently, looking from the sea to the town. 
Nothing brought her so quickly to the point as Fang's stupidity. Neither, she whispered. I've got the keys to the haunted house in the square, and I'm going there tonight. Shorthouse was conscious of the slightest possible tremor down his back. He dropped his teasing tone. Something in her voice and manner thrilled him. She was in earnest. But you can't go alone, he began. That's why I wired for you, she said with decision. He turned to look at her. The ugly-lined, enigmatical face was alive with excitement. There was the glow of genuine enthusiasm round like a halo. The eyes shone. He caught another wave of her excitement and a second tremor, more marked than the first accompanied it. Thanks, Aunt Julia, he said politely. Thanks awfully. I should not dare to go quite alone, she went on, raising her voice. But with you I should enjoy it immensely. You are afraid of nothing, I know. Thanks so much, he began again. Er, is anything likely to happen? A great deal has happened, she whispered, though it's been most cleverly hushed up. Three tenants have come and gone in the last few months, and the house is said to be empty for good now. In spite of himself, Shorthouse became interested. His aunt was so very much in earnest. The house is very old indeed, she went on, and the story, an unpleasant one dates a long way back. It has to do with the murder committed by a jealous stableman who had some affair with a servant in the house. One night he managed to secrete himself in the cellar, and when everyone was asleep, he crept upstairs to the servant's quarters, chased the girl to the next landing, and before anyone could come to rescue, he threw her body over the banisters and into the hall below. And the stableman? Was caught, I believe, and hanged for murder. But it all happened a century ago, and I've not been able to get any more details of the story. Shorthouse felt his interest thoroughly aroused. But though he was not particularly nervous for himself, he hesitated a little on his aunt's account. On one condition, he said at length. Nothing will prevent my going, she said firmly, but I may as well hear your condition. That you guarantee your power of self-control if anything really horrible happens... I mean that you are sure that you won't get too frightened. Jim, she said scornfully, I am not young, I know, nor are my nerves, but I am with you. I should be afraid of nothing in the world. This, of course, settled it, for Shorthouse had no pretensions to being other than a very ordinary young man, and an appeal to his vanity was irresistible. He agreed to go. Instinctively, by a sort of subconscious preparation, he kept himself and his forces well in hand the whole evening, compelling an accumulative reverse of control by that nameless inward process of gradually putting all the emotions away and turning the key upon them. A process difficult to describe, but wonderfully effective, as all men who have lived through severe trials of the inner man will understand. Later, it stood him in good stead. But it was not until half-past ten, when they stood in the hall, well in the glare of friendly lamps and still surrounded by comforting human influences, that he had to make the first call upon his store of collected strength. For once the door was closed, he saw the deserted silent street stretching away white in the moonlight before them. It came to him clearly that the real test that night would be in dealing with two fears instead of one. He would have to carry his aunt's fears as well as his own, and as he glanced down at her sphinx-like countenance and realized that it might assume no pleasant aspect in a rush of real terror, 
he felt satisfied with only one thing in the whole adventure, that he had confidence in his own will and power to stand against any shock that might come. Slowly they walked along the empty streets of the town. A bright autumn moon silvered the roofs, casting deep shadows. There was no breath of wind, and the trees in the formal gardens by the seafront watched them silently as they passed along. To his aunt's occasional remarks, Shorthouse made no reply, realizing that she was simply surrounding herself with mental buffers, saying ordinary things to prevent herself thinking of extraordinary things. Few windows showed lights, and from scarcely a single chimney came smoke or sparks. Shorthouse had already begun to notice everything, even the smallest details. Presently they stopped at the street corner and looked up at the name on the side of the house full in the moonlight, and with one accord, but without remark, turned into the square and crossed over the side of it that lay in shadow. The number on the house is thirteen, whispered a female voice at his side, and neither of them made the obvious reference, but passed across the broad sheet of moonlight and began to march up the pavement in silence. It was about halfway up the square that Shorthouse felt an arm slipped quietly but significantly into his own, and he knew that their adventure had begun in earnest, and that his companion was already yielding imperceptibly in the influences against them. She needed support. A few minutes later they stopped before a tall, narrow house that rose before them into the night, ugly in shape and painted a dingy white. Shutterless windows without blinds stared down upon them, shining here and there in the moonlight. There were weather streaks in the wall and cracks in the paint, and the balcony bulged out from the first floor a little unnaturally. But beyond this generally forlorn appearance of the unoccupied house, there was nothing at first sight to single out this particular mansion for the evil character it had most certainly acquired. Taking a look over their shoulders to make sure they had not been followed, they went boldly up the steps and stood against the huge black door that fronted them forbiddingly. But the first wave of nervousness was now upon them, and Shorthouse fumbled a long time with the key before he fit it into the lock at all. For a moment, if truth were told, they both hoped that it would not open, for they were a prey to various unpleasant emotions as they stood there on the threshold of their ghostly adventure. Shorthouse, shuffling with the key and hampered by a steady weight on his arm, certainly felt the solemnity of the moment. It was as if the whole world, for all experience, seemed at the instant concentrated in his own consciousness, were listening to the grating noise of that key. A stray puff of wind wandering down the empty street woke a momentary rustling in the trees behind them, but otherwise this rattling of the key was the only sound audible, and at last it turned into the lock, and the heavy door swung open and revealed a yawning gulf of darkness beyond. With a last glance at the moonlit square, they passed quickly in, and the door slammed behind them with a roar that echoed prodigiously through the empty halls and passages. But instantly, with the echoes, another sound made itself heard, and Aunt Julia leaned suddenly so heavily upon him that he had to take a step backwards to save himself from falling. A man had coughed close behind them, so close that it seemed they must have been actually by his side in the darkness. With the possibility of practical jokes in his mind, Shorthouse at once swung his heavy stick in the direction of the sound, but it meant nothing more than solid air. He heard his aunt give a little gasp beside him. "'There's someone here,' she whispered, 
I heard him. Be quiet, he said sternly. It's nothing but a noise from the front door. Oh, get a light quick, she added, as her nephew, fumbling with the box of matches, opened it upside down and let all of them fall with a rattle onto the floor. The sound, however, was not repeated, and there was no evidence of retreating footsteps. In another minute, they had a candle burning, using an empty end of the cigar case as a holder, and when the first flare had died down, he held the impromptu lamp aloft and surveyed the scene. And it was dreary enough in all conscience, for there was nothing more desolate in all the abodes of men an unfurnished house dimly lit, silent and forsaken, and yet taunted by rumor with memories of evil and violent histories. They were standing in a wide hallway. On their left was the open door of spacious dining room, and in the front the hall ran, ever narrowing into a long, dark passage that led apparently to the top of the kitchen stairs. The broad, uncarpeted staircase rose in a sweep before them, everywhere draped in shadows except for a single spot about halfway up where the moonlight came in through the window and fell on a bright patch on the boards. The shaft of light fed a faint radiance above and below it, lending to the objects within its reach a misty outline that was indefinitely more suggestive and ghostly than complete darkness. Filtered moonlight always seemed to paint faces on surrounding gloom, and as Shorthouse peered up into the wall of darkness and thought of the countless empty rooms and passages in upper parts of the old house, he caught himself longing again for the safety of the moonlit square, or the cozy, bright drawing room they had left an hour before. Then realizing that these thoughts were dangerous, he thrust them away again and summoned all his energy for concentration on the present. Aunt Julia, he said aloud, severely, we must now go through the house from top to bottom and make a thorough search. The echoes of his voice died away slowly over all the building, and in the intense silence that followed, he turned to look at her. In the candlelight, he saw her face was already ghastly pale, but she dropped his arm for a moment and in a whisper, stepping close in front of him. I agree. We must be sure there's no one hiding. That's the first thing. She spoke with evident effort, and he looked at her with admiration. You feel quite sure of yourself? It's not too late. I think so, she whispered, her eyes shifting nervously towards the shadows behind. Quite sure. Only one thing. What's that? You must never leave me alone for an instant. As long as you understand that any sound or appearance must be investigated at once, for to hesitate means to admit fear. That is fatal. Agreed she said, a little shaky, after a moment's hesitation. I'll try. Arm in arm, Shorthouse holding the dripping candle and the stick, while his aunt carried the cloak over her shoulders, figured of utter comedy to all but themselves, they began a systematic search. Stealthily, walking on tiptoe, and shading the candle lest it should betray their presence through the shutterless windows, they went first into the big dining room. There was not a stick of furniture to be seen, Bare walls, ugly metal pieces, and empty grates stared at them. Everything, they felt, resented their intrusion, watching them, as it were, with veiled eyes. Whispers followed them, shadows flitted noisily to the right and left. Something seemed ever at their back, watching, waiting an opportunity to do them injury. 
There was the inevitable sense that operations which went on the room was empty and had been temporarily suspended until they were well out of the way again. The whole dark interior of the whole building seemed to have become a malignant presence that rose up, warning them to desist and mind their own business. Every moment the strain on the nerves increased. Out of the gloomy dining room they passed through large folding doors into a sort of library or smoking room. Wrapped equally in silence, darkness, and dust, and from this they regained the hall near the top of the back stairs. Here a pitch of black tunnel opened before them into the lower regions, and, it must be confused, they hesitated. But only for a minute, with the worst of the night still to come, and it was essential to turn from nothing. Aunt Julia stumbled at the top of the step of the dark descent, ill-lit by the flickering candle, and even Shorthouse felt at least half of the decision go out of his legs. Come on, he said peremptorily, and his voice ran on and lost itself in the dark, empty spaces below. I'm coming, she faltered, catching his arm with unnecessary violence. They went a little unsteadily down the stone steps, a cold damp air meeting them in the face, close and malodorous. The kitchen, into which the stairs led along the narrow passage, was large, with a lofty ceiling. Several doors opened out of it some into the cupboards with empty jars still standing on the shelves, and others into horrible little ghostly back offices, each colder and less inviting than the last. Black beetles scurried over the floor, and once when they knocked against a deal table standing in the corner, something about the size of a cat jumped down with a rush and fled, scampering across the floor. Everywhere there was a sense of recent occupation, an impression of sadness and gloom, Leaving the main kitchen, they next went towards the scullery. The door was standing ajar, and as they pushed it open to its full extent, Aunt Julia uttered a piercing scream, which she instantly tried to stifle by placing her hand over her mouth. For a second, Shorthouse stood stock still, catching his breath. He felt as if his spine had suddenly become hollow and someone had filled it with particles of ice. Facing them, directly in their way between the doorposts, stood a figure of a woman, she had disheveled hair and wildly staring eyes, and her face was terrified and white as death. She stood there motionless for a space of a single second. Then the candle flickered and she was gone, gone utterly, and the door framed nothing but empty darkness. Only the beastly jumping candlelight, he said quickly, in a voice that sounded like someone else's and was only half under control. Come on, aunt, there's nothing here. He dragged her forward. With a clattering of feet and a great appearance of boldness they went on, but over his body the skin moved as if crawling ants covered it, and he knew by the weight of his arm that he was supplying the force of locomotion for two. The scullery was cold, bare, and empty, more like a large prison cell than anything else. They went around it, tried the door into the yard, and the windows, but found them all fastened securely. His aunt moved beside him like a person in a dream. Her eyes were tightly shut, and she seemed merely to follow the pressure of his arm. Her courage filled him with amazement. At the same time, he noticed that a certain odd change had come over her face, a change which somehow invaded his power of analysis. There's nothing here, Auntie, he repeated aloud, quickly. Let's go upstairs and see the rest of the house. Then we'll choose a room to wait up in. She followed him obediently, keeping close to his side, and they locked the kitchen door behind him. It was a relief to get up again, and in the hall there was more light than before, for the moon had traveled a little further down the stairs. 
Cautiously, they began to go up into the dark vault in the upper house, and the boards creaking under their weight. On the first floor, they found the large double drawing rooms, a search which revealed nothing. Here also was no sign of furniture or recent occupancy, nothing but dust and neglect of shadows. They opened the big folding doors between the front and back drawing rooms, and then they came out again to the landing and went upstairs. They had not gone up more than a dozen steps when they both simultaneously stopped to listen, looking into each other's eyes with new apprehension across the flickering candle flame. From the room they had left hardly ten seconds before came a sound of the doors quietly closing. It was beyond all question. They heard the booming noise that accompanies the shutting of heavy doors, followed by the sharp catching of a latch. We must go back and see, said Shorthouse briefly, in a low tone, and turning to go down the stairs again. Somehow she managed to drag after him, her feet catching in her dress, her face livid. When they entered the front drawing room, it was plain that the folding doors had been closed half a minute before. Without hesitation, Shorthouse opened them. He almost expected to see someone's face in the black room, but only darkness and cold air met him. They went through both rooms, finding nothing unusual. They tried in every way to make the doors close for themselves, but there was not wind enough even to set the candle flame flickering. The doors would not move without a strong pressure. All was silent as a grave. Undeniably, the rooms were utterly empty, and the house utterly still. It's beginning, whispered a voice at his elbow, which he hardly recognized as his aunt's. He nodded acquiescence taking out his watch to note the time. It was fifteen minutes before midnight. He made an entry of exactly what had happened in his notebook, setting the candle in its case on the floor in order to do so. It took a moment or two to balance it safely against the wall. Aunt Julia always declared that at this moment she was not actually watching him, but had turned her head towards the inner room, where she fancied she heard something moving. But at any rate, both positively agreed that there came a sound of rushing feet, heavy and very swift, and the next instant the candle was out. But to Shorthouse himself had come more than this, and he always thanked his fortunate stars that it came to him alone and not to his aunt too. For as he rose from the stooping position of balancing the candle, and before it actually extinguished, a face thrust itself forward so close to his own that he could have almost touched it with his lips. It was a face working with passion, a man's face, a dark with thick features, and angry, savage eyes. It belonged to a common man, and it was evil in its ordinary, normal expression, no doubt. But as he saw it, alive with intense, aggressive emotion, it was a malignant and terrible human continuance. There was no movement of air, nothing but the sound of rushing feet, stockinged or muffled feet, the apparition of the face, and the almost simultaneous extinguishing of the candle. In spite of himself, Shorthouse uttered a little cry, nearly losing his balance as his aunt clung to him with her whole weight in one moment of real uncontrollable terror. She made no sound, but simply seized him bodily. Fortunately, however, she had seen nothing, but had only heard the rushing feet. For her control returned almost at once, and he was able to disentangle himself and strike a match. The shadows ran away on all sides before the glare and his aunt stooped down and groped for the cigar case with the precious candle. Then they discovered that the candle had not been blown out at all. It had been crushed. The wick was pressed into the wax, which was flattened as if by some smooth, heavy instrument. 
How his companion so quickly overcame her terror, Shorthouse never properly understood, but his admiration for her self-control increased tenfold, and at that time served to feed his own dying flame, for which he was undeniably grateful. Equally inexplicable to him was the evidence of physical force that they had just witnessed. He at once suppressed the memory of stories he had heard of physical mediums and their dangerous phenomena. For if these were true, and either his aunt or himself was unwittingly a physical medium, it meant that they were simply aiding to the focus and forces of a haunted house already charged to the brim. It was like walking with unprotected lamps among uncovered stores of gunpowder. So, with little reflection as possible, he simply relit the candle and went up to the next floor. The arm in his trembled, it is true, and his own tread was often uncertain. But they went on with thoroughness, and after a search revealing nothing, they climbed the last flight of stairs to the top floor of all. Here they found a perfect nest of small servants' rooms, with broken pieces of furniture, dirty cane-bottomed chairs, chests of drawers, cracked mirrors, and decrepit bedsteads. The rooms had low-sloping ceilings that already hung here and there with cobwebs, small windows, and badly plastered walls a depressing and dismissal region which they were glad to leave behind. It was on a stroke of midnight when they entered a small room on the third floor, close to the top of the stairs, and arranged to make themselves comfortable for a remainder of their adventure. It was absolutely bare, and was said to be the room, then used as clothes closets, to which the infuriated groom had chased his victim and finally caught her. Outside across the narrow landing began the stairs leading up to the floor above, and the servants' quarters where they had just searched. In spite of the chillness of the night, there was something in the air of this room that cried for an open window. But there was more than this. Shorthouse could only describe it by saying that he felt less master of himself here than in any part of the house. There was something that acted directly on the nerves, tiring the resolution, enfeebling the will. He was conscious of this result before he had been in the room five minutes, and it was in the short time that they stayed there that he suffered the wholesale depletion of his vital forces, which was, for himself, the chief horror of the whole experience. They put the candle on the floor of the cupboard, leaving the door a few inches ajar, so that there was no glare to confuse the eyes, and no shadow to shift about on the walls and the ceiling. Then they spread the cloak on the floor and sat down to wait, with their backs against the wall. Shorthouse was within a few feet of the door on the landing, his position commanded a good view of the main staircase leading into the darkness, and also the beginning of the servant stairs going to the floor above. A heavy stick lay beside him within easy reach. The moon was now high above the house, though the open window they could see the comforting stars like friendly eyes watching the sky. One by one the clocks of the town struck midnight, and when the sounds died away, the deep silence of the windless night fell again over everything. Only the boom of the sea far away and lugubrious, filled the air with hollow murmurs. Inside the house, the silence became awful. Awful, he thought, because any minute now it might be broken by sounds of protruding terror. The strain of waiting told more and more severely on his nerves. They talked in whispers when they talked at all, for the voices aloud sounded queer and unnatural. A chillingness not altogether due to the night air invaded the room and made them cold. The influences against them, whatever these might be, were slowly robbing them of self-confidence and the power of decisive action. Their forces were on the wane, and the possibility of real fear took a new and terrible meaning. He began to tremble for the elderly woman by his side, 
whose pluck could hardly save her beyond a certain extent. He heard the blood singing in his veins. It sometimes seemed so loud that he fancied it, prevented his hearing properly certain other sounds that were beginning very faintly to make themselves audible in the depths of the house. Every time he fastened his attention on these sounds, he instantly ceased. They certainly came no nearer, yet he could not rid himself of the idea that movement was going on somewhere in the lower regions of the house. The drawing-room floor, where the doors had been so strangely closed, seemed too near. The sounds were further off than that. He thought of the great kitchen, with the scurrying black beetles, and of the dismissal of the scullery. But somehow or other, they did not seem to come from there either. Surely they were not outside the house. Then suddenly the truth flashed into his mind, and for the space of a minute he felt as if his blood had stopped flowing and turned to ice. The sounds were not downstairs at all. They were upstairs. Upstairs somewhere among the horrid, gloomy little servants' rooms with their bits of broken furniture, low ceilings, and cramped windows. Upstairs where the victim had first been disturbed and stalked to her death. In the moment he discovered where the sounds were, he began to hear them more clearly. It was the sound of feet, moving stealthily along the passage overhead, in and out and among the rooms, and past the furniture. He turned quickly to steal a glance at his motionless figure seated beside him. No note whether she had shared his discovery. The faint candlelight coming through the crack of the cupboard door threw her strongly marked face into vivid relief against the white of the wall but it was something else that made him catch his breath and stare again. An extraordinary something that had come into her face and seemed to spread all over her features like a mask. It smoothed out the deep lines that drew the skin everywhere a little tighter, so that the wrinkles disappeared. It brought into the face, with the sole exception of the old eyes, an appearance of youth and almost of childhood. He stared in speechless amazement, amazement that was dangerously near to horror. It was his aunt's face indeed, but it was her face of forty years ago, a vacant, innocent face of a girl. He had heard stories of strange effect of terror which would wipe a human continuance clean of other emotions, obliterating all previous expressions, but he had never realized that it could be literally true, or could mean anything so simply horrible as to what he saw now. For the dreadful signature of overmastering fear was written painfully in that utter vacancy of the girlish face beside him. And when feeling his intense gaze, she turned to look at him. He instinctively closed his eyes tightly to shut out the sight. Yet when he turned a minute later, his feelings well in hand, he saw to his intense relief another expression. His aunt was smiling, and though the face was deathly white, the awful veil had lifted and the normal look was returning. Anything wrong was all he could think to say at the moment. And the answer was eloquent, coming from such a woman. I feel cold, and I feel frightened she whispered. He offered to close the window, but she seized hold of him and begged him not to leave her side, even for an instant. It's upstairs, I know, she whispered with an odd half-laugh, but I can't possibly go up. But Shorehouse thought otherwise, knowing that in action lay their best hope for self-control. He took the brandy flask and poured out a glass of neat spirit, stiff enough to help anybody over anything. He swallowed it with a little shiver, his only idea now was to get out of the house before her collapse became inevitable. But this could not safely be done by turning tail and running away from the enemy. Inaction was no longer possible. Every minute he was growing less master of himself, and desperate. Aggressive measures were imperative without further delay. 
Moreover, the action must be taken towards the enemy, not away from it. The climax, if necessary and unavoidable, would have to be faced boldly. He could do it now, but in ten minutes he might not have the force left to act for himself, much less for both. Upstairs, the sounds were meanwhile becoming louder and closer, accompanied by occasional creaking of the floorboards. Someone was moving stealthily about, stumbling now and then awkwardly against the furniture. Waiting a few moments to allow for the tremendous dose of spirits to produce its effect, and knowing this would last but a short time under the circumstances, Shorthouse then quickly got onto his feet, saying in a determined voice, Now, Aunt Julia, we'll go upstairs and find out what all this noise is about. You must come, too. That's what we agreed. He picked up a stick and went to the cupboard for a candle. A limp form rose shakily beside him, breathing hard, and he heard a voice say very faintly something about being ready to come. The woman's courage amazed him. It was so much greater than his own. And as they advanced, holding aloft the dripping candle, some subtle force exhaled from his trembling, white-faced old woman at his side that was his true source of inspiration. It held something really great that shamed him and gave him support without which he would have proved far less equal to the occasion. They crossed the dark landing, avoiding their eyes to the deep black space over the banisters. Then they began to mount the narrow staircase to meet the sounds which, minute by minute, grew louder and nearer. About halfway up the stairs, Aunt Julia stumbled and Shorthouse turned to catch her by her arm. And just at that moment, there came a terrific crash in the servant's quarter overhead. It was instantly followed by a shrill, agonized scream that was a cry of terror and a cry for help that melted all into one. Before they could move aside or go down a single step, someone came rushing along the passage overhead, blundering horribly, racing madly at full speed three steps at a time, down the very staircase where they stood. The steps were light and uncertain, but close behind them sounded the heavy tread of another person, and the staircase seemed to shake. Shorthouse and his companion had time to flatten themselves against the wall when the jumble of flying steps was upon them and two persons, with the slightest possible interval between them, dashed past at full speed. It was a perfect whirlwind of sound breaking in upon the midnight silence of the empty building. The two runners, pursuer and pursued, had passed clean through them where they stood, and already with the thud the boards below had received first one, then another. Yet they had seen absolutely nothing, not a hand or face or arm or even a shred of flying clothing. There came a second pause. Then the first one, the lighter of the two, obviously the pursued one, ran with uncertain footsteps into the little room which Shorthouse and his aunt had just left. The heavier one followed. There was a sound of scuffling, gasping, and smothered screaming, and then out onto the landing came a step of a single person treading weightily. A dead silence followed for the pace of half a minute, and then was heard a rushing sound through the air. It was followed by a dull, crashing thud in the depths of the house below and on the stone floor of the hall. Utter silence reigned after. Nothing moved. The flame of the candle was steady. It had been steady the whole time, and the air had been undisturbed by any movement whatsoever. Palsied with terror, Aunt Julia, without waiting for her companion, began fumbling her way down the stairs. She was crying gently to herself, and when Shorthouse put his arm around her and half carried her, he felt that she was trembling like a leaf. He went into the room and picked up the cloak from the floor, and arm in arm walking very slowly, without speaking a word or looking once behind them, they marched down the three flights and into the hall. 
In the hall, they saw nothing, but the whole way down the stairs, they were conscious that someone was following them, step by step. When they went faster, it was left behind, and when they went more slowly, it caught up to them. But never once did they look behind to see, and at each turning of the staircase, they lowered their eyes, for fear of following horror they might see upon the stairs above. With trembling hands, Shorthouse opened the front door, and they walked into the moonlight and drew a deep breath of the cool night air blowing in from the sea. Our next story is A Haunted Island. Let's begin. The following events occurred on a small island of isolated position in a large Canadian lake to whose cool water the inhabitants of Montreal and Toronto flee for rest and recreation in the hot months. It is only to be regretted that events of such peculiar interest to the genuine student of the psychical should be entirely uncorroborated. Such, unfortunately, however, is the case. Our own party of nearly twenty had returned to Montreal that very day, and I was left in solitary possession for a week or two longer in order to accomplish some important reading for the law which I had foolishly neglected during the summer. It was late in September, and the big trout masconage were stirring themselves in the depths of the lake and beginning slowly to move up the surface waters as the north winds and early frost lowered their temperature. Already the maples were crimson and gold, and the wild laughter of the loons echoed in sheltered bays that never knew their strange cry in the summer. With a whole island to oneself, a two-story cottage, a canoe, and only the chipmunks, and the farmer's weekly visit with eggs and bread to disturb one, the opportunities for hard reading might be very great. It all depends. The rest of the party had gone off with many warnings to beware of the Indians, and not to stay late enough to be the victim of a frost that thinks nothing of forty below zero. After they had gone, the loneliness of the situation made itself unpleasantly felt. There were no other islands within six or seven miles, and though the mainland forest lay a couple of miles behind me, they stretched for a very great distance, unbroken by any signs of human habitation. But, though the island was completely deserted and silent, the rocks and trees had echoed human laughter and voices almost every hour of the day for two months could not fail to retain some memories of it all and I was not surprised to fancy I heard a shout or cry as I pressed from rock to rock, and more than once to imagine that I heard my own name called aloud. In the cottage there were six tiny little bedrooms, divided from one another by plain, unvarnished partitions of pine. A wooded bedstead, a mattress, and a chair stood in each room, but I only found two mirrors, and one of these was broken. The boards creaked a good deal as I moved about, and the signs of occupation were so recent that I could hardly believe I was alone. I half expected to find someone left behind, still trying to crowd into a box more than it would hold. The door of one room was stiff and refused for a moment to open, and it required very little persuasion to imagine someone was holding the handle on the inside, and that when it opened, I should meet a pair of human eyes. 
A thorough search of the floor led me to select as my own sleeping quarters, a little room with a diminutive balcony over the veranda roof. The room was very small, but the bed was large and had the best mattress of them all. It was situated directly over the sitting room where I should live and do my reading, and the miniature window looking out to the rising sun. With the exception of a narrow path which led from the front door and veranda through the trees to the boat landing, the island was densely covered with maples, hemlocks, and cedars. The trees gathered and round the cottage so closely that the slightest wind made the branches scrape the roof and tap the wooden walls. A few moments after sunset, the darkness became impenetrable, and ten years beyond the glare of the lamps that shone through the sitting room windows, of which there were four, you could not see an inch before your nose, nor move a step without running up against a tree. The rest of the day I spent moving my belongings from my tent to the sitting room, taking stock of the contents of the larder and chopping enough wood for the stove to last for me a week. After that, just before sunset, I went round the island a couple of times in my canoe, for precaution's sake. I had never dreamed of doing this before, but when a man is alone, he does things that have never occurred to him when he is one of a large party. How lonely the island seemed when I landed again. The sun was down, and twilight is unknown in these northern regions. The darkness comes up at once. The canoe safely pulled up and turned over on her face, I groped my way up the little narrow pathway to the veranda. The six lamps were soon burning merrily in the front room, but in the kitchen, where I dined, the shadows were so gloomy, and the lamplight was so inadequate that the stars could be seen peeping through the cracks between the rafters. I turned in early that night. Though it was calm and there was no wind, the creeping of my bedstead and the musical gurgle of the water over the rocks below were not the only sound that reached my ears. As I lay awake, the appalling emptiness of the house grew upon me. The corridors and vacant rooms seemed to echo innumerable footsteps, shuffling the rustle of skirts and a constant undertone of whispering. When sleep at length overtook me, the breathing and the noises, however, passed gently to mingle with the voices of my dreams. A week passed by, and the reading progressed favorably. On the tenth day of my solitude, a strange thing happened. I awoke after a good night's sleep to find myself possessed with a marked repugnance for my room. The air seemed to stifle me. The more I tried to define the cause of this dislike, the more unreasonable it appeared. There was something about the room that made me afraid. Absurd as it seems, this feeling clung to me obstinately while dressing, and more than once I caught myself shivering and cautious of an inclination to get out of that room as quickly as possible. The more I tried to laugh it away, the more real it became. And when at last I was dressed and went out to the passage and downstairs into the kitchen, it was with feelings of relief, such as I might imagine would accompany one's escape from the presence of a dangerous, contagious disease. While cooking my breakfast, I carefully recalled every night spent in the room in the hope that I might, in some way, 
connect with the dislike I now felt with some disagreeable incident that had occurred in it. But the only thing I could recall was one stormy night when I suddenly awoke and heard the boards creaking so loudly in the corridor that I was convinced there were people in the house. So certain was I of this that I had descended the stairs, gun in hand, only to find the doors and windows securely fastened and the mice and black beetles in sole possession of the floor. This was certainly not sufficient to account for the strength of my feelings. The morning hours I spent in steady reading, and when I broke off in the middle of the day for a swim and a luncheon, I was very much surprised, if not a little alarmed, to find that my dislike for the room had, if anything, grown stronger. Going upstairs to get a book, I experienced the most marked aversion to entering the room, and while within, I was conscious all the time of an uncomfortable feeling that was half uneasiness and half apprehension. The result of it was that, instead of reading, I spent the afternoon on the water paddling and fishing, and when I got home about sundown, brought with me half a dozen delicious black bass for the supper table in the larder. As sleep was an important matter to me at this time, I had decided that if my aversion to the room was so strongly marked on my return as it had been before, I would move my bed down into the sitting room and sleep there. This was, I argued, in no sense a concession to an absurd and fanciful fear, but simply a precaution to ensure a good night's sleep. A bad night involved the loss of the next day's reading, a loss I was not prepared to incur. I accordingly moved my bed downstairs into a corner of the sitting room, facing the door, and was moreover uncommonly glad when the operation was completed, and the door of the bedroom closed finally upon the shadows, the silence, and the strange fear that shared the room with them. The croaking stroke of the kitchen clock sounded the hour of eight as I finished washing up my few dishes and closing the kitchen door behind me, passed into the front room. All the lamps were lit and their reflectors, which I had polished up during the day, threw a blaze of light into the room. Outside the night was still and warm, not a breath of air was stirring, the waves were silent, the trees motionless, and heavy clouds hung like an oppressive curtain over the heavens. The darkness seemed to have rolled up with an unusual swiftness, and not the faintest glow of color remained to show where the sun had set. There was present in the atmosphere that ominous and overwhelming silence which so often precedes the most violent storms. I sat down to my books with my brain unusually clear, and in my heart the pleasant satisfaction of knowing that five black bass were lying in the ice house, and that tomorrow morning the old farmer would arrive with fresh bread and eggs. I was soon absorbed in my books. As the night wore on, the silence deepened. Even the chipmunks were still, and the boards of the floors and walls ceased creaking. I read on steadily till, from the gloomy shadows of the kitchen, came the hoarse sound of the clock striking nine. How loud the strokes sounded. They were like blows of a big hammer. 
I closed one book and opened another, feeling that I was just warming up to my work. This, however, did not last long. I presently found that I was reading the same paragraphs over twice, simple paragraphs that did not require such effort. Then I noticed that my mind began to wander to other things, and the effort to recall my thoughts became harder with each digression. Concentration was growing momentarily more difficult. Presently, I discovered that I had turned over two pages instead of one, and had not noticed my mistake until I was well down the page. This was becoming serious. What was the disturbing influence? It could not be physical fatigue. On the contrary, my mind was unusually alert and in a more receptive condition than usual. I made a new and determined effort to read, and for a short time succeeded in giving my whole attention to my subject. But in a very few moments again, I found myself leaning back in my chair, staring vacantly into space. Something was evidently at work in my subconscious. There was something I had neglected to do. Perhaps the kitchen doors and windows were not fastened. I accordingly went to see and found that they were. The fire perhaps needed attention. I went to see and found that it was all right. I looked at the lamps, went upstairs in every bedroom in turn, and then went around the house and even to the ice house. Nothing was wrong. Everything was in its place. Yet... Something was wrong. The conviction grew stronger and stronger within me. When I, at length, settled down to my books again and tried to read, I became aware, for the first time, the room seemed growing cold. Yet the day had been oppressively warm, and the evening had brought no relief. The six big lamps, moreover, gave out enough heat to warm the room pleasantly. But a chilliness that perhaps crept up from the lake made itself felt in the room and caused me to get up to close the glass door opening on the veranda. For a brief moment I stood looking out at the shaft of light that fell from the windows and shone some little distance down the pathway and out for a few feet into the lake. As I looked I saw a canoe glide into the pathway of light and immediately crossing it pass out of sight again into the darkness. It was perhaps a hundred feet from the shore, and it moved swiftly. I was surprised that a canoe should pass the island at that time of night, for all the summer visitors from the other side of the lake had gone home weeks before, and the island was a long way out of any line of water traffic. My reading from this moment did not make very good progress, for somehow the picture of that canoe gliding so dimly and swiftly across the narrow track of light of the black waters silhouetted itself against the background of my mind with a singular vividness. It kept coming between my eyes and the printed page. The more I thought about it, the more surprised I became. It was of larger build than any I had seen during the past summer months, and was more like the old Indian war canoes with the high, curving bows and stern and wide beam. The more I tried to read, the less success attended my efforts, and finally I closed my book and went out to the veranda to walk up and down for a bit. 
and shake the chilliness out of my bones. The night was perfectly still and as dark as imaginable. I stumbled down the path to the little wandering wharf where the water made the very faintest of gurgling under the timbers. The sound of a big tree falling in the mainland forest far across the lake stirred echoes in the heavy air like the first guns of a distant night attack. No other sound disturbed the stillness that reigned supreme. As I stood up upon the wharf in the broad splash of light that followed me from the sitting room windows, I saw another canoe across the pathway of an uncertain light upon the water and disappeared at once into the impenetrable gloom that lay beyond. This time I saw more distinctly than before. It was like the former canoe, a big birch bark with high crested bows and stern and broad beam. It was paddled by two Indians, of whom the one in the stern, the steerer, appeared to be a very large man. I could see this very plainly, and though the second canoe was much nearer the island than first, I judged that they were both on their way home to the government reservation, which was situated some fifteen miles away upon the mainland. I was wondering in my mind what could possibly bring any Indians down to this part of the lake at such an hour of the night, when a third canoe of precisely similar build and also accompanied by two Indians passed silently round the end of the war. This time the canoe was very much nearer shore, and it suddenly flashed into my mind that the three canoes were in reality one and the same, and that only one canoe was circling the island. This was by no means a pleasant reflection, because if it were the correct solution of an unnatural appearance of the three canoes in this lonely part of the lake at so late an hour, the purpose of two men could only reasonably be considered to be in some way connected with myself. I had never known of the Indians attempting any violence upon the settlers who shared the wild, inhospitable country with them. At the same time, I was not beyond the region of possibility to suppose. But then I did not care nor even think of such hideous possibilities, and my imagination immediately sought relief in all manner of other solutions to the problem, which indeed came readily enough to my mind, but did not succeed in recommending themselves to my reason. Meanwhile, by a sort of instinct, I stepped back out of the bright lights in which I had hitherto been standing, and waited in the deep shadow of a rock to see if the canoe would again make its appearance. Here I could see without being seen, and the precaution seemed a wise one. After less than five minutes, the canoe, as I had anticipated, made its fourth appearance. This time it was not twenty yards from the wharf, and I saw that the Indians meant to land. I recognized the two men as those who had passed before, and the steerer was certainly an immense fellow. It was unquestionably the same canoe. There could be no longer any doubt that for some purpose of their own the men had been going round and round the island for some time, waiting for an opportunity to land. I strained my eyes to follow them in the darkness, but the night had completely swallowed them up, and not even the faintest swish of paddles reached my ears as the Indians 
live their long and powerful strokes. The canoe would be round again in a few moments, and this time it was possible that the men might land. It was well to be prepared. I knew nothing of their intentions, and two to one, when the two are big Indians, late at night on a lonely island was not exactly my idea of pleasant intercourse. In a corner of the sitting room, leaning up against the back wall, stood my marlin rifle, with ten cartridges in the magazine, and one lying snugly in the greased breech. There was just time to get up to the house and take up a position of defense in that corner. Without an instant's hesitation, I ran up to the veranda, carefully picking my way among the trees so as to avoid being seen in the light. Entering the room, I shut the door leading to the veranda, and as quickly as possible, turned out every one of the six lamps. To be in a room so brilliantly lighted, where my every movement could be observed from outside, while I could see nothing but impenetrable darkness at every window, was by all laws of warfare an unnecessary concession to the enemy. And this enemy, if enemy it was to be, was far too wily and dangerous to be granted any such advantages. I stood in the corner of the room with my back against the wall and my hand on the cold rifle barrel. The table, covered with my books, lay between me and the door, but for the first few minutes after the lights were out, the darkness was so intense that nothing could be discerned at all. Then, very gradually, the outline of the room became visible, and the framework of the windows began to shape itself dimly before my eyes. After a few minutes, the door, its upper half of glass, and the two windows that looked out upon the front veranda became specially distinct. And I was glad that this was so, because if the Indians came up to the house, I should be able to see their approach and gather something of their plans. Nor was I mistaken, for there presently came to my ears the peculiar hollowed sound of a canoe landing and being carefully dragged up over the rocks. The paddles I distinctly heard being placed underneath, and the silence that ensued thereupon, I rightly interpreted to mean that the Indians were stealthily approaching the house. While it would be absurd to claim that I was not alarmed, even frightened, at the gravity of the situation and its possible outcome, I speak the whole truth when I say that I was not overwhelmingly afraid for myself. I was conscious that even at this stage of nights, I was passing into a psychical condition in which my sensations seemed no longer normal. Physical fear at no time entered into the nature of my feelings, and though I kept my hand upon my rifle the greater part of the night, I was all the time conscious that its assistance could be of little avail against the terrors that I had to face. More than once I seemed to feel, most curiously, that I was in no real sense a part of the proceedings nor actually involved in them, but that I was playing the part of a spectator spectator, moreover, on a psychic, rather than on a material plane. Many of my sensations that night were too vague for definitive description and analysis, but the main feeling that will stay with me to the end of my days is the awful horror of it all, and the miserable sensation that if the strain had been lasted a little longer than was actually the case, my mind must inevitably have given away.
Meanwhile, I stood in my corner and waited patiently for what was to come. The house was as still as the grave, but the inarticulate voices of the night sang in my ears, and I seemed to hear the blood running in my veins and dancing in my pulses. If the Indians came to the back of the house, they would find the kitchen door and windows securely fastened. They could not get in there without making considerable noise, which I was bound to hear. The only mode of getting in was by means of the door that faced me, and I kept my eyes glued on that door without taking them off for the smallest fraction of a second. My sight adapted itself every minute better to the darkness. I saw the table that nearly filled the room, and I left only a narrow passage on each side. I could also make out the straight backs of the wooden chairs pressed up against it, and could even distinguish my papers and inkstand lying on the white oilcloth covering. I thought of the gay faces that had gathered round the table during the summer, and I longed for the sunlight as I had never longed for it before. Less than three feet to my left, the passageway led to the kitchen and the stairs leading to the bedrooms. Above, commenced in this passageway, but almost in the sitting room itself. Through the windows I could see the dim, motionless outlines of the trees. Not a leaf stirred, not a branch moved. A few moments of this awful silence, and then I was aware of a soft tread on the boards of the veranda, so stealthily that it seemed an impression directly on my brain rather than upon the nerves of hearing. Immediately afterwards, a black figure darkened the glass door, and I perceived that a face was pressed against the upper panes. A shiver ran down my back, and my hair was conscious of my tendency to rise and stand at right angles to my head. It was the figure of an Indian, broad-shouldered and immense, indeed, the largest figure of a man I had ever seen outside of a circus hall. By some power of light that seemed to generate itself in the brain, I saw the strong, dark face with the aquiline nose and high cheekbones flattened against the glass. The direction of the gaze I could not determine, but faint gleams of light as the big eyes rolled around and showed their whites told me plainly that no corner of the room escaped their searching. For what seemed fully five minutes, the dark figure stood there with huge shoulders bent forward so as to bring the head down to the level of the glass, while behind him, though not nearly so large, the shadowy form of another Indian swayed to and fro like a bent tree. While I waited in an agony of suspense and agitation for their next movement, little currents of icy sensation ran up and down my spine, and my heart seemed alternately to stop beating and then start off again with terrifying rapidity. I must have heard its thumping and singing of the blood in my head. Moreover, I was conscious, as I felt a cold stream of perspiration trickle down my face, of a desire to scream, to shout, to bang the walls like a child, to make a noise or do anything that would relieve the suspense that brings things to a speedy climax. It was probably this inclination that led me to another discovery, for when I tried to bring my rifle from behind my back to raise it and to have it pointed at the door ready to fire, I found that I was powerless to move. The muscles, paralyzed by this strange fear, refused to obey the will. Here, indeed, was a terrifying complication. There was a faint sound of rattling at the brass knob, and the door was pushed open a couple of inches. 
a pause for a few seconds, and it was pushed open still further. Without the sound of footsteps, this was appreciable to my ears. The two figures glided into the room. The man behind gently closed the door after him. They were alone with me, between the four walls. Could they see me standing there, so still and straight in my corner? Had they, perhaps, already seen me? My blood surged and sang like the roll of drums in an orchestra, and I thought I did my best to suppress my breathing. It sounded like the rushing of wind through a pneumatic tube. My suspense as to the next move was soon at an end, only, however, to give place to a new and keener alarm. The man had hitherto exchanged no words and no signs, but there were general indications of a movement across the room, and whichever way they went, they would have to pass around the table. If they came my way, they would have to pass within six inches of my person. While I was considering this very disagreeable possibility, I perceived that the smaller Indian, smaller by comparison, suddenly raised his arm and pointed to the ceiling. The other fellow raised his head and followed the direction of his companion's arm. I began to understand at last. They were going upstairs, and the room directly overhead to which they pointed had been, until this night, my bedroom. It was the room in which I had experienced that very morning so strange a sensation of fear, and but for which I should have then been lying asleep in the narrow bed against the window. The Indians began to move silently around the room. They were going upstairs, and they were coming round my side of the table. So stealthy were their movements that, but for the abnormally sensitive state of the nerves, I should have never heard them. As it was, their cat-like tread was distinctly audible, like two monstrous black cats that came round the table toward me, and for the first time I perceived that the smaller one of the two dragged something along the floor behind him. As it trailed along over the floor with a soft sweeping sound, I somehow got the impression that it was a large dead thing with outstretched wings or a large spreading cedar branch. Whatever it was, was unable to see its even in outline, and I was too terrified, even had I possessed the power over my muscles to move my neck forward in the effort to determine its nature. Nearer and nearer they came. The leader rested a giant hand upon the table as he moved. My lips were glued together and the air seemed to burn in my nostrils. I tried to close my eyes so that I might not see as they passed me, but my eyelids had stiffened and refused to obey. Would they never get by me? Sensation seemed also to have left my legs, and it was as if I were standing on mere supports of wood or stone. Worse still, I was conscious that I was losing the power of balance, the power to stand upright or even to lean backwards against the wall. Some force was drawing me forward. A dizzy terror seized me that I should lose my balance and topple forward against the Indians just as they were in the act of passing me. 
Even moments, drawn out into hours, must come to an end sometime, and almost before I knew it, the figures had passed me and had their feet upon the lower step of the stairs leading to the upper bedrooms. There could not have been six inches between us, and yet I was conscious only for a current of cold air that followed them. They had not touched me. I was convinced that they had not seen me. Even the trailing thing on the floor behind them had not touched my feet, as I dreaded it would. And on such an occasion as this, I was grateful even for the smallest mercies. The absence of the Indians from my immediate neighborhood brought little sense of relief. I stood shivering and shuddering in my corner, and beyond being able to breathe more freely, I felt no wit less uncomfortable. Also, I was aware that a certain light, which without apparent source of rays, had enabled me to follow their every gesture and movement, had gone out of the room with their departure. An unnatural darkness now filled the room and pervaded its every corner so that I could barely make it out of the positions of the windows and the glass doors. As I said before, my condition was evidently an abnormal one. The capacity for feeling surprise seemed, as in dreams, to be wholly absent. My senses recorded with an unusual accuracy every smallest occurrence, but I was only able to draw only the simplest deductions. The Indians soon reached the top of the stairs, and there they halted for a moment. I had not the faintest clue as to their next movement. They appeared to hesitate. They were listening attentively, and then I heard one of them, who by the weight of his soft tread must have been the giant, cross the narrow corridor and enter the room directly overhead, my own little bedroom. But for the instance of that uncomfortable dread I had experienced there in the morning, I should at that very moment have been lying in the bed with the big Indian in the room standing beside me. For the space of a hundred seconds, there was silence, such as might have existed before the birth of sound. It was followed by a long, quivering shriek of terror which rang out into the night and ended in a short gulp before it had run its full course. At that same moment, the other Indian left his place at the end of the stairs and joined his companion in the bedroom. I heard the thing trailing behind him along the floor. A thud followed as something heavy falling and then... All became as still, as silent as before. It was at this point the atmosphere, surcharged all day with the electricity of a fierce storm, found relief in the dancing flash of brilliant lightning, simultaneously with a crash of the loudest thunder. For five seconds, every article in the room was visible to me with amazing distinctness, and through the windows I saw tree trunks standing in solemn rows. The thunder pealed and echoed across the lake and among the distant islands, and the floodgates of heaven then opened and let out their rain of streaming torrents. The drops fell with a swift rushing sound upon the still waters of the lake, which leaped up to meet them and then pattered with the rattle of shot on the leaves and maples and the roof of the cottage. A moment later, in another flash, even more brilliant and of longer duration than the first, lit up the sky from zenith to horizon and bathed the room momentarily in dazzling whiteness. 
I could see the rain glistening on the leaves and branches outside. The wind rose suddenly, and in less than a minute the storm that had been gathering all day burst forth in its full fury. Above all, the noisy voices of the elements, the slightest sounds in the room overhead, made themselves heard, and in the few seconds of deep silence that followed the shriek of terror and pain, I was aware that movements had commenced again. The men were leaving the room and approaching the top of the stairs. A short pause and they began to descend. Behind them, tumbling from step to step, I could hear that trailing thing being dragged along. It had become ponderous. I awaited their approach with a degree of calmness, almost of apathy, which was only explicable on the ground that, after a certain point, nature applies her own aesthetic, and a merciful condition of numbness supervenes. On they came, step by step, nearer by nearer, with the shuffling sound of the burden behind growing louder as they approached. They were already halfway down the stairs when I was galvanized afresh into a condition of terror by the consideration of a new and horrible possibility. It was the reflection that if another vivid flash of lightning were to come when the shadowy procession was in the room, perhaps when it was actually passing in front of me, I should see everything in detail, and worse, be seen myself. If I could only hold my breath and wait, wait while the minutes lengthened into hours and the procession made its slow progress around the room. The Indians had reached the foot of the staircase. The form of the huge leader loomed in the doorway of the passage, and the burden with an ominous thud had dropped from the last step to the floor. There was a moment's pause while I saw the Indian turn and stoop to assist his companion. Then the procession moved forward again, entered the room close on my left, and began to move slowly round my side of the table. The leader was already beyond me, and his companion dragging on the floor behind me, him the burden whose confused outline I could dimly make out was exactly in front of me when the cavalcade came to a dead halt. At the same moment, with the strange suddenness of thunderstorms, the splash of rain ceased altogether, and the wind died away into utter silence. For the space of five seconds, my heart seemed to stop beating, and then the worst came. A double flash of lightning lit up the room and its contents with merciless vividness. The huge Indian leader stood a few feet past me on my right. One leg was stretched forward in the act of taking a step. His immense shoulders were turned toward his companion, and in all their magnificent fierceness I saw the outline of his features. His gaze was directed upon the burden his companion was dragging along the floor, but his profile, with the big aquiline nose, high cheekbones, straight black hair, and bald chin, burnt itself into that brief instant into my brain, never again to fade. Dwarfish, compared with the gigantic figure, appeared the proportions of the other Indian, who, within twelve inches of my face, was stooping over the thing he was dragging in a position that lent to his person the additional horror of deformity, and the burden lying upon the sweeping cedar branch which he had held and dragged by a long stem was the body of a white man. 
The scalp had been neatly lifted, and blood lay in a broad smear upon the cheeks and forehead. Then, for the first time that night, the terror that had paralyzed my muscle and my will lifted its unholy spell from my soul. With a loud cry, I stretched down my arms to seize the big Indian by the throat, and grasping only air, tumbled forward unconsciousness upon the ground. I had recognized the body, and the face was my own. It was bright daylight when the man's voice recalled me to consciousness. I was laying there where I had fallen, and the farmer was standing in the room with the loaves of bread and hands. The horror of the night was still in my heart, and as the bluff settler helped me to my feet and picked up the rifle which had fallen with me, with many questions and expressions of condolence, I imagine my brief replies were neither self-explanatory nor even intelligible. That day, after a thorough and fruitless search of the house, I left the island and went over to spend my last ten days with the farmer, and when the time came for me to leave, the necessary reading had been accomplished and my nerves had completely recovered their balance. On the day of my departure, the farmer started early in his big boat with my belongings to row to the point twelve miles distant, where a little streamer ran twice a week for the accommodation of hunters. Late in the afternoon, I went off in another direction in my canoe, wishing to see the island once again, where I had been the victim of so strange an experience. In due course, I arrived there and made a tour of the island. I also made a search of the little house, and it was not without curious sensation in my heart that I entered the little upstairs bedroom. There seemed nothing unusual. Just after I re-embarked, I saw a canoe gliding ahead of me around the curve of the island. A canoe was an unusual sight at this time of year, and this one seemed to have sprung from nowhere. Altering my course a little, I watched it disappear around the next projecting point of rock. It had a high curving bows, and there were two Indians in it. I lingered with some excitement to see if it would appear ever again around the other side of the island, and in less than five minutes it came into view. There were less than two hundred yards between us, and the Indians, sitting on their haunches, were paddling swiftly in my direction. I never paddled faster in my life than I did in those next two minutes. When I turned to look again, the Indians had altered their course and were again circling the island. The sun was sinking behind the forest of the mainland, and the crimson-covered clouds of sunset were reflected in the waters of the lake. When I looked round for the last time and saw the big bark canoe and its two dusky occupants still going round the island, then the two shadows deepened rapidly. The lake grew black, and the night wind blew its first breath in my face as I turned a corner and a projecting bluff of rock hid from my view, both island and canoe.